let's start diving into our study. And uh, we're going to talk about the temple, uh, the temple in Solomon. And this is, this covers a lot of material. Um, and uh, it's, if you start in, in the book of Second Chronicles, uh, you can get there in chapter three. There's a lot to cover. Uh, this is huge. And there's so much to really kind of geek out on. Um, that it's kind of hard to know what to focus on. Uh, when, when we come to the part of the Bible where the temple is built in Jerusalem, we find a lot of similarities um, to building the tabernacle. And I mean, there's just like the same types of details, same type of story. And you could really devote it, uh, divide it into like four major sections like you could the tabernacle. You have the, the preparation and instructions, you have the building of the temple, you have the dedication ceremony, and then you have God's response to what the people did. Um, and, and like the building of the tabernacle, there's a lot of repetition of details. Um, however, with the temple, we also have two different accounts recorded. We have Kings and Chronicles, which means we really have a repetition of the repetition of the repetition. Um, only there's a slight variance between accounts. Repeated and repetitive repetition. Exactly what it is. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to just keep saying it over and over again until you get it which I think is a lot of the ways that God approached Israel with so many different things. Um, and the same that he does for us. Uh, there are some differences between what you read in Chronicles and what you read in Kings. And so you should know that uh, depending upon which uh, book you choose to read the account in, you might catch something a little bit different in each one. The main, the main story is the same, but you will have uh, just some minor differences between the ways that they're worded. So um, some of you that are really like uh, Bible, Bible nerds uh, might enjoy actually putting these two books side by side and then going, okay, well, here's what this one says and here's what this one says and actually uh, looking at some of the differences. I'm going to bring out at least one of them this morning, maybe a couple. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but let's talk about, first of all, the preparations and the instructions for the temple. Um, David, not David Steltz, but King David from Israel was not able to build the temple because God forbid him to do so. So while David had a permanent home, God did not. And that task then was given to Solomon. Um, and, but David really set Solomon up for success. And I think this talks a lot about what was uh, on David's heart and, and what was uh, part of his legacy, I guess I would call it, for the nation. Um, he couldn't build the temple, but he gave Solomon uh, the bling. I mean, gold, gold, and more gold and all sorts of stuff. And then he gave him the blueprints for how to build it. Um, so if you're going to, you know, make it in, a, in alliteration, you know, he got bling and blueprints. And then you have your two Bs and you've alliterated well, like, like you're taught in college. Um, if you read the book of first and second, the books of first and second Chronicles, you might remember um, in First Chronicles 28 and 29, the last two chapters of that book, it talks about the way that David provided for all that Solomon would need. So I know I told you we're going to pick up in Second Chronicles chapter 3, but actually I'm going to go back a little bit to the end of David's life for the preparations. Because Solomon, though Solomon did do some preparations like approaching Hiram about getting lumber, um, the majority of the work was already done for Solomon. So that by the time he's in his fourth year of reigning, he's building the temple, which is, is pretty cool. Um, so in First Chronicles 28, 9 through 11, um, we read the following. As for you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, know, know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches every heart and understands the intentions of every thought. And if you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you abandon him, he will reject you forever. Realize now that the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. So be strong and do it. And then David gave his son Solomon the plans. Um, and it goes on to describe some of those plans. We're not going to get into all the details of the plans um, because that's probably where we, to where we lose everybody. But as you go on in First Chronicles 28, you jump to verse 19. And at the end of that uh, plan there, David concluded in verse 19, by the Lord's hand on me, he enabled me to understand everything in writing, all the details of the plan. Then David said to his son Solomon, 
be strong and courageous and do the work. And don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all the work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. And then if you go to Chronicles 29, 1 and 2, you continue. And David said to all the assembly, my son Solomon, God has chosen him alone. He is young and inexperienced. And the task is great because the building will not be built for human, but for the Lord God. So to the best of my ability, I've made provisions for the house of my God. And it's amazing the provisions that they had. Um, so as you, as you read through this history, you see that it was David obviously wanted to build the tabernacle or the temple, excuse me, but was not able to build the temple because he was a man of much bloodshed. He was a man of war. And so God promised that, that a descendant, that a son of, of David would be able to build that temple. But David's, that didn't deter David and his passion to want to make sure that he could get everything possible for the preparations. And uh, I think that's a great legacy of David, knowing that what he was doing was not going to be something he would see in his lifetime but that he would uh, be setting up his son for success to be able to do for God uh, what he wanted. And I think that that's a great just side lesson for us to kind of grab a hold of and think through. So the preparations, the majority of the preparations, the blueprints, the bling, all the gold and everything, in fact, just in the inside of the tabernacle, of the temple, excuse me, there's over 45,000 pounds of gold. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. So all I can't this even really imagine what that would look like. <laughs> right? It's a 22 and a half tons or something like that, right? He's like, how many, the tons and tons and tons of gold. So anyway, to, to, to think about all the preparation that took place, um, it, it was obvious that Solomon was picked by God to do a job that no one else had ever attempted. And that was to make a place fit for God to live in. And so... Solomon picks up his reign and immediately knows that one of the big tasks on his plate, aside from killing all those people like we talked about last time, the big task on his plate is to build this, this temple, this building that God can live in. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, you know, David was a man of bloodshed, but then Solomon did kill, kill a bunch of people by ordering them to be killed, but uh, <clears throat> We won't go there. That really, a lot of that we talked about last week that reflects more poorly on David and his lack of, you know, wrapping things up during his reign than it does on Solomon. But uh, when you do read about the, how they built the temple, um, there are so many details. You know, David had some exact um, measures or weights of, of the gold and silver for every item that was going to be in the temple. And they had these really specific instructions um, on how to build it, how the walls were to be built and how they cut all of the stone off site so that no hammering would be heard. Um, just tons, tons of details. And I don't know about you, but when I have read through these descriptions of the, whether it's in Chronicles or Kings or even uh, very similar descriptions of the tabernacle um, uh, back in um, you know Deuteronomy and Exodus, you get kind of lost in all of the different details and trying to imagine it. And I don't know if you try to like picture it in your head or even draw it out or you know, diagram it. Um, it's really difficult to follow sometimes. <laughs> uh, so a lot of times I just kind of skim over it really quickly or skip it altogether. Um, Cause when I'm reading through it, it, it kind of gets like monotonous and I kind of tune it out. But, um, and, and that's totally understandable if the, if you're, if you're the same way. Um, Maybe that should be our other poll. How many of you tune out when you get all the details of something like the tabernacle or temple? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I do think it's good to kind of stop for a minute and, and think about the significance um, of the details of the temple, because the temple is, as you, we go through the narrative, it's going to become really the most significant structure, most significant building in the lives of the Jews from that point on. Um, and it's going to be also a symbol to the surrounding nations um, and a, a hope for Israel. And it's going to be the place where 
the God of the universe is going to show up and, and kind of manifest his presence, uh, which is super, super significant. Um, and the temple, the design of the temple is also significant because as, as a building, the design of it actually in some ways tells the story of God and communicates his story and um, his plan for, for creation. Um, and it's in second Chronicles three and four or first Kings uh, six through eight that tell how the, the temple was built. But instead of reading through those chapters uh, together as a family, I s still encourage reading it and, and trying to comprehend it. But um, thankfully, I'm grateful that we live in <laughs> a time um, a time in the world where people have actually done some really cool things to to visualize this and done the work of creating a visual representation. Um, <clears throat> and I I've seen illustrations before, but now with you know computer generated stuff um, people have actually been able to create 3d representations and, and a fly-through video of what the temple um, would have looked like uh, most likely um, so how about we watch a really cool video on what that looked like I'm gonna... i think video is better yeah yeah matter of fact when we were reading and preparing for this david's like um yeah i i'm i got some videos you need to watch because i started reading them and i just totally like zoned out so i found some videos i'm like we should share those yeah so david's got, <laughs> got one queued up for us right yes yes i do um make sure you enable the computer audio when you do the screen share yes uh, for not some reason it's video. not showing me video window for sharing it's only sh it's only giving me the whiteboard option why don't you just draw the temple for us then david and just okay. kind of use the whiteboard <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe not maybe not let's, let's try the video Solomon's temple stood in Jerusalem for almost 400 years. It? it was the crown jewel yes. of Jerusalem and the center of worship to the Lord. Almost half of the Old Testament writings took place during the time when Solomon's temple was still standing. Understanding the significance of its location, history, and design can greatly add to one's reverence for one of the most holy places in the world. The city of Jerusalem is located in an area of three major valleys, the Hinnom, the Central or Tyropian, and the Kidron Valley. The mountain range between the Central and Kidron Valley is called Mount Moriah. The peak of the mountain is a large protruding flat rock, which is now located under the Dome of the Rock. According to Genesis 22:2, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac in the region of Moriah, connecting the Temple Mount with this significant event. At the time of King David, the area of Jerusalem was controlled by the Jebusites, the city only occupying the southern part of the central ridge. When David captured the city in about 1000 BC, he made Jerusalem his capital. David then moved the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and began preparations for building a permanent structure to replace the portable tabernacle of Moses that had been used for over 400 years. With the ancient city of Jerusalem being fairly small, David purchased the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite so he could expand the size of the city. Being higher than the city of David, the hilltop would make a beautiful place to build the temple of the Lord. Under the reign of David's son, King Solomon, the temple construction began. After seven years of construction in about 960 BC, Solomon finished building the temple, most likely built over the same protruding rock of Mount Moriah. 
Solomon also built himself a new palace just south of the temple and expanded the walls of the city up towards the peak of Mount Moriah. The Temple of Solomon was modeled after the Tabernacle of Moses. Because of the many similarities between the Tabernacle and the Garden of Eden, many scholars believe that the Garden of Eden was the prototype for the Tabernacle, and thus later temples. According to Jewish tradition, Eden was located on a hill, with the Tree of Life and the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil at the center of the hill. The Bible teaches that when Adam and Eve transgressed and partook of the forbidden fruit, they were cast out towards the east. Cherubim and a flaming sword were then placed at the east entrance to prevent them from partaking of the tree of life, as they would then live forever in their sin. In order to return back into the presence of God, Israel had to symbolically retrace the steps of Adam and Eve, passing the cherubim and re-entering the garden in a westward direction. The tabernacle was set up in the same east-to-west progression, seeming to replicate the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was divided into three main courts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The outer court represented the fallen world, while the inner courts represented a more sacred and holier way of life. In essence, as the priest, who represented all of Israel, progressed through the tabernacle, or temple, he left the world to enter a more holy state, and then was enabled to re-enter the presence of the Lord, passing the angels, or cherubim, who were embroidered on the veil. Solomon's temple replicated this same three-level progression, doubling the floor plan size of the tabernacle sanctuary for the temple structure. As one approached the Temple of Solomon, the first thing noticed was the brazen altar of sacrifice. The altar was 20 cubits long and wide and 10 cubits high, a cubit being the length from the elbow to the tip of the longest finger, or about one and a half feet. On the four corners of the altar were four horns, horns often representing power. This is where the sacrificial animals were burned, representing the future sacrifice of the Savior Jesus Christ. On the southeast side of the temple was the molten or brazen sea, which rested on the backs of twelve oxen, three pointing in each of the cardinal directions. In ancient times, oxen represented strength, and the number 12 often represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Water from the larger brazen sea was poured into 10 bronze water basins on both sides of the temple, which could then be wheeled around the outer court for various washing and cleansing rituals by the priests. Around the south, west, and north sides of the temple were three floors of chambers or storage rooms. The inside wall of the chambers was stepped so as to create a ledge where the timbers of the floors could rest. The storage rooms were accessed by a door on the south side of the temple, with wooden ladders going up into each of the floors. At the front of the temple were two large bronze pillars that flanked the porch. The pillar on the left was named Boaz, and the pillar on the right was named Yaquin. The tops were decorated with lily flower petals and pomegranates. Pomegranates were a sign of prosperity and posterity because of their many seeds, and were also found on the bottom hem of the clothing of the high priest. The main temple doors were made of two large bifolding doors covered in gold with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. The Bible describes the doorframe as being a fourth part of the wall, which most scholars believe means that the door had four stepped frames. The interior doorway of the Holy of Holies was similar, except having five frames instead of four. The priests, who represented Israel, were the only ones allowed into the inner temple. This means that Israel only could enter through being represented by the priests. Once you entered the main doors, you entered the holy place, a large room 40 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits tall. The room was overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, possibly alluding to the beauty of the Garden of Eden. The room was lit by ten large menorahs, five on each side of the room, that were constantly burning, and narrow windows on each side of the top of the room. 
On the right side of the room was located the table of showbread, which had twelve large flat pita-like loaves. The priests ate and then replaced the showbread every Sabbath, similar to our weekly partaking of the communion or sacramental bread. Breaking bread and sharing a meal with someone in ancient times represented that you were at peace with them and was a sign of brotherhood, love, and forgiveness. Directly in front of the Holy of Holies was the altar of incense. The altar was similar to the altar of sacrifice in that it had a square footprint and also had four horns, one on each of the corners. However, on the altar of sacrifice was burned the flesh of animals, while upon the altar of incense burned a sweet combination of incenses. The incense burning before the veil of the temple represented the prayers of the saints ascending to God before the veil, a reminder that before we can enter God's presence, our lives, prayers, and actions must become a sweet savor unto the Lord. Only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies, and only on one day a year, the Day of Atonement. Before entering, the high priest passed through a beautifully embroidered veil woven from purple, red, blue, and white threads. The colors were the same as used in the ephod and breastplate of the clothing of the high priest, minus the gold thread. Embroidered on the veil were cherubim, who symbolically guarded the dwelling place of God. As the high priest passed through the veil, he had to pass these angels, who, like in the Garden of Eden, guarded the way back to the presence of the Lord. Upon entering the Holy of Holies, you would find that the room is in the shape of a perfect cube, being twenty cubits wide, long, and tall. The walls were likewise overlaid with gold and decorated with cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. Two large cherubim flanked the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the center of the room, with their wings stretching from one side of the room to the other. This room is where the presence of the Lord would dwell and represented the final goal and destiny of all Israel. Solomon's temple was not only a landmark for the city of Jerusalem, but more importantly, the dwelling place of the Lord. The layout represented Israel's progression back into God's presence and was designed to teach Israel that it was only through the infinite sacrifice of the sinless Messiah that they could once again enjoy the presence of the Lord. A sacrifice that would be performed on a cross only a short distance from this holy mountain. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I think that's a pretty cool video. Um, anyone else feel like that was really helpful in getting a, a visual of what the temple would have looked like and kind of getting a context of that? Nice, getting a lot of yeses. Um, Cool. What are what are some of the things that stood out to you guys um, before we share some of the things that that we've noticed when looking at kind of studying the temple and not just in the the video but um, overall? What are some of the things that that you noticed? Yeah, the doorway on the outside was four frames while the inside was five frames. Symbolizing the garden. Caroline says there's a lot of gold. Yeah, lots of gold. Nelly says the connection to the Garden of Eden. Three different rooms and what they meant. Kind of, yeah, that progression. <laughs> Once a year must have gotten dusty. Yeah. Although, you know, it was it was so secluded there probably wasn't a whole lot of stuff to generate dust in there. So centrality of God's presence to all of it. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, didn't didn't know the connection to the Garden of Eden. That connection to the Garden um, was definitely one of the the things that stood out to us. To me, uh, for sure, uh, that's one of the, the biggest things. Um, where so much of the the imagery is designed um, around representing that garden paradise with all you know the so many symbols of nature trees and fruit and, and all of that <laughs> Connor and Valley if this was meant to use the most valuable materials I think of what it might look like today with the resources and building tools we have. The oxen, the number 12, the colors, all the symbolism. Would it keep the same shape or just the dimensions, diamonds, <laughs> nuclear, nuclear temple? Uh, actually, it makes me think of um, What's the name of that cathedral they've been building in Spain for like a hundred years? Um, it'll come to me. It's it's beautiful. It's a Catholic, you know, cathedral, but the design of it is actually modeled around trying to represent creation and like has pillars that look like trees and natural light coming in. Um, really, really cool. Yeah, as we were as we were watching this and then looking through the passages, there's like so many cool things to notice in the actual temple design um, and, and the details of it. Uh, one of the things I noted was that noticed was that um, it was built in seven years. Uh, and again, you have the, that number seven that keeps repeating and completeness and the, the tie into creation and everything again. And uh, I think that's really cool the way that that happens. Um, I think that uh, the the dimensions struck stuck out to me. Um, the actual dimensions of the tabernacle, the footprint. Our church building is forty by eighty. The ta the temple was thirty by ninety. It was less square footage than the current NCF building. The main part of the of the temple itself, like the side rooms, would have added to it, and the portico, the front porch, would have added to it. But the actual temple itself was was less a smaller footprint than the ncf building it would have been at least tw a little bit more than twice as high but and a, a note on the dimensions too they mentioned in the video that a cubit um was the length of the, the elbow to the tip of your finger the longest the middle finger um which is a, a difference in in some of your translations like if you look at the kjv it'll have cubits i think the nasb uses cubits um whereas some translations will just use feet and inches um, to make it easier for us to comprehend. But so something interesting about that is that cubits were by nature not a, as exact as our imperial or metric units because it was based on body parts. So that made it really practical in the sense that you could just use your arm to measure, uh, but that meant it could vary by a few inches here and there as far as the exact dimensions. But we still have a good idea of it was about two and a half feet. Um, or a, a foot and a half, sorry, um, per cubit. So we can then picture using that um, that translation of, of units uh, to to picture that that size. Yeah. But yeah, the, does anyone else has anyone else pictured the temple as being a lot larger than? than that when you picture the NCF building and thinking that it was actually narrower and kind of roughly around those dimensions. I, I had always pictured it as much larger, <laughs> much larger than that. And yeah, obviously, like, like you said, the surrounding area was larger, but Caroline well, says yes. Yeah. The Holy of Holies, they said that was like roughly 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet as a cube. Mm -hmm. um, the, the main meeting room that we meet in at, at NCF is 40 feet by 40 feet. And at the peak, it's about, it's about 13 or 14 feet. So that's actually like 10 feet wide. You have to come in like almost where those five chairs sit on the outside edge. You have to almost like come into the inside of those chairs to get like a square that's, that's the size of the, of the Holy of Holies. And when you see those cherubim and they've got the, 
the wings extended. You're thinking like this massive, massive structure and you realize, uh, well, they were big. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I guess in our brains, we just enlarge everything, you know, we're, we're like Texas sizing everything. I don't know why, but <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why that is. But David, you had brought up something that struck you, which was uh, the design of it, but also the images, having images inside mm. the, the temple. Well, just kind of the fact that there, there was a design and that it had representations of Christian, uh, or Christian of creation um, was so, so cool to me because with the temple and the tabernacle in using those images, it's revealing that God himself is a designer and he cares about beauty and uh, what things look like. And the fact that creation itself is beautiful and that creation is a reflection of God's nature. It tells us that God is beautiful and the very idea of beauty comes from God and he cares about things being beautiful. And because I myself am a designer, I am an artist of sorts, um, I, I love that aspect about God and that he cares about um, art and beauty and design. But it's also it's also um, ironic to me too that we would that he that God would have in his temple these representations of both things on earth, images of things on earth, and images of things of, uh, on heaven, right? Because in heaven, because you have the, the cherubim um, and these like heavenly images too. Because wasn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Not to create <laughs> images of things in heaven or earth. So what's up with that? Are you asking for an answer? Is that a rhetorical question? Because I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I guess kind of both. If anyone wants to chime in on that, please do. Um, but I think it is, it, it's one thing to take away from that is to realize that the commandment was certainly um, not that we could never create something that reflects God's beauty or the beauty of creation. Um, rather, the the intent of the creating of the thing um, being to worship that which was created versus worshiping the creator himself. Um, so that's, that's an important distinction to make between what an idol is and what just, you know, a landscape painting, you know, is, is not necessarily an idol. Uh, if you're building a shrine around a landscape and, and praying to it, then that's an idol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the Parkers um, definitely summarized that well in the chat there. Yes, too. I think we can make things to honor God, but not to worship instead of him. Yeah, and that's always the the line is whether it's anything we're creating or doing or saying, if it's to bring glory and honor to God and worship him, then that's a good thing. But if we're bringing glory and honor to ourselves or that thing or worshiping that thing, then it is a sinful thing. Yeah. 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 The motive and the attitude make all the difference. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, a couple of things that you might notice too, as you think about the temple design versus the tabernacle design, the temple um, had some elements to it that the tabernacle did not. The storehouses um, to put in the, the treasures of God uh, that did not exist in the tabernacle, the cherubim that were over the top of the Ark of the Covenant did not exist in the tabernacle um those two front pillars those are interesting so you have these two 30 foot tall pillars in the front and their names they're named so the yeah. one on the left is jakin <laughs> and the one on the right is boaz and uh, if you have a study bible you might even see in the footnote um jakin means he will establish and boaz means strength is in him and so these two pillars are additions to the, the design from the tabernacle. And so you have uh, these pillars reminding that it's God who establishes and it's God who strengthens. And, and Hebrew reads really right cool. to left. So that's why the right is the first part and the left is the second part. <laughs> cool. Cool. 
so yeah, those are kind of unique and you've got, so you've got some things that are there that are not in the tabernacle that just, again, give us a little bit more insight. But remember the tabernacle is the, the question comes out like, why, why did God allow them to build the tabernacle in the first place? Why did God allow them to build the temple in the first place? And, and when my friend, when David asked about building the temple, God said, I, I never asked for that. I don't need a permanent place to live. Um, so why would God allow the temple to be built? And, and I think when you understand how the temple points to the big picture mission of God, you know, it goes right back to Genesis and the fact that uh, it's God among his people. And it, it really helps us to see that the temple was not so much something um, for God as it was for his people to understand what God is doing. And it's going to become the symbol that's, that just, uh, carries throughout the rest of scripture, even especially into the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to see that in just uh, a little bit here, um, some of it. So um, we have a lot to dive into. We're going to jump past the the building of the temple. We're not going to get into all the reading of that, but I want us to jump to that seven years after they started construction of the temple. So it's the 11th year of Solomon's reign at this point, and they're going to have a dedication ceremony. And uh, it's really, it's really worth looking at. It's in second Chronicles six. So turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles 6. And uh, we're going to talk about the, this dedication. Um, some things to note in this passage. Um, th- there's some great theology. So, so be looking for some different theology that you might see in here that really helps us understand uh, uh, the knowledge of God um, and his, his heart. Um, and notice how many times the word pray, prayer, and petition are used. Um, it's pretty, pretty significant. So let's, uh, let's read through this. It's a pretty long reading. Um, I should let David read for a little bit, probably, uh, just because. So, um, you want to take part of it, David, and I'll go from there. Or you want to just take the whole thing? Sure. Either way. Um, I can, I can start off. Um, but yeah, it's a long passage. Just stop me when you want me to stop. <laughs> All right, I will get a cup of coffee. You keep reading. <laughs> All right. Um, and I, so depending on your translation, um, it says, it starts right off. Then Solomon says, the Lord said. And when it's in those small caps, the Lord, it's really using uh, God's name, Yahweh. We've talked about that uh, few times. So I'm going to actually substitute Yahweh in for some of this because I think it really helps wrap your head around um, how personal of a thing this temple was uh, when you actually use that name. It's a good reminder. So just to get started, Second Chronicles chapter 6, then Solomon said, Yahweh said he would dwell in total darkness, but I have built an exalted temple for you, a place for your residence forever. Then the king turned and blessed the entire congregation of Israel while they were standing. He said, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel. He spoke directly to my father David, and he has fulfilled the promise by his power. He said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of the land of Egypt, I have not chosen a city to build a temple in among any of the tribes of Israel so that my name would be there. And I have not chosen a man to be ruler over my people, Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem so that my name will be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. My father, David, had his heart set on building a temple for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, Yahweh said to my father, David, since it was your desire to build a temple for my name, You have done well to have this desire. Yet you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own offspring, will build the temple for my name. So Yahweh has fulfilled what he promised. I have taken the place of my father David, and I sit on the throne of Israel as Yahweh promised. I have built the temple for the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I have put the ark there where Yahweh's covenant is that he made with the Israelites. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in front of the entire congregation of Israel and spread out his hands. For Solomon had made a bronze platform, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high, and put it in the court. He stood on it, knelt down in front of the entire congregation of Israel, and spread out his hands 
toward heaven. Quick side note that uh, bronze platform it's, is Solomon's portico, and there's a reference to it in um, Acts. That's where Jesus actually teaches from it. Peter preaches from it. Interesting little side note. Um, Solomon said, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth who keeps his gracious covenant with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised to your servant, my father David. You spoke directly to him and you fulfilled your promise by your power as it is today. Therefore, Yahweh, God of Israel, keep what you promised to your servant, my father David. You will never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons guard their way to walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now, Yahweh, God of Israel, please confirm what you promised to your servant, David. Now, as we get to verse 18, this is where we start to see uh, those words, um, pray and prayer and petition, and also hear and listen shows up a lot. But will God indeed live on earth with humans? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. Listen to your servant's prayer and his petition, Yahweh my God, so that you may hear the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, so that your eyes watch over this temple day and night toward the place where you said you would put your name, and so that you may hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the petitions of your servant and your people Israel, where, which they pray towards this place. May you hear in your dwelling place in heaven. May you hear and forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and he comes to take an oath before your altar in this temple, may you hear in heaven and act. May you judge your servants condemning the wicked man by bringing what he has done on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and they return to you and praise your name and they pray and plead for mercy because you in the, uh, before you in this temple, may you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel. May you restore them to the land you gave them and their ancestors. When the skies are shut and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and praise your name and they turn from their sins because you are afflicting them, May you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and your people Israel, so that you may teach them the good way they should walk in. May you send rain on your land that you gave your people for an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, when there is pestilence, when there is blight, or mildew, locust, or grasshopper, when their enemies besiege them in the land and its cities, when there is any plague or illness, every prayer or petition that any person or that all your people Israel may have, they each know their own affliction and suffering as they spread out their hands toward this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place, and may you forgive and give to everyone according to their, all their ways, since you know each heart, for you alone know the human heart, so that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days they live on the land that you gave your our ancestors. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your strong hand and outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, may you hear in heaven in your dwelling place and do all the foreigner asks you. Then all the peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people, Israel, do and know that this temple I have built bears your name. When your people go out to fight against their enemies, wherever you send them, and they pray to you in the direction of the city you have chosen, and the temple that I have built for your name, may you hear their prayer and petition in heaven and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for <clears throat> there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and hand them over to the enemy, and their captors deport them to a distant or nearby country, Notice it said when, not if. And when they come to their senses in the land where they were deported and repent and petition you in their captor's land saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. And when they return to you with all their mind and all their heart in the land of their captivity where they were taken captive. And when they pray in the direction of their land that you gave their ancestors and the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name. May you hear their prayer and petitions in heaven, your dwelling place, and uphold their cause. 
May you forgive your people who sinned against you. Now, my God, please let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. Now, therefore, arise, Yahweh God. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. May your priests, Yahweh God, be clothed with salvation, and may your faithful people rejoice in goodness. Yahweh God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the promises to your servant David. The yeah, toll so belling in the background is epic. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So there's just so much in this passage. I know it's, it's a lot to read. You did a great job, David. Thank you for reading that. Um, My pleasure. But did you notice some of the repetition in that? You know, in that passage, you've got how many times did Solomon say, you know, God, you don't dwell in this place. You dwell in heaven. We can't contain you. And so he's he makes sure he brings that up. Um, He's not contained in anything in this earth. Uh, You see that God is brought up as a promise keeper and he's faithful, that only God knows the hearts of men and that everybody sins. the word prayer and pray and petition, you know, 20 times shows up in this passage. And the word here appears tw- uh, 12 times in this passage. Um, it's a significant, significant uh, thing that Solomon is asking here. Uh, I think it's, it's even amazing that he says, hey, not only your, your special people, Israel, but even if a foreigner, if somebody that is not even one of your people uh, acknowledges you by praying toward this temple, uh, hear their prayers and give them the requests. I mean, that's really, that's huge. That's, that's an insight that goes back to um, the Abrahamic covenant for sure, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Um, so you definitely see that tied in here. But, but I think that there's some, some things we have to realize. Um, and, and I think that you have to see where uh, this concept of what the temple represents carries over throughout the entire history of the nation Israel, even to the time of Christ. Uh, if, we, if we fast forward and we go to the, um, the place where Jesus is about to be uh, arrested and crucified, as he enters into the city, um, as he enters into Jerusalem, he ends up ransacking the temple, right? Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 45 and 46 is one of the accounts of that. And it says, when, when he went into the temple, he, he began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, the quote is going back to Isaiah 56, verse 7, uh, which says, I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, where does Isaiah get that from? But to go back to this very prayer that Solomon is praying, that that on this holy mountain where this temple is built, how many times do you talk about praying? When, when we face famine, we're going to pray. When we're persecuted by our enemies, we're going to pray. When we're struggling with sin, we're going to pray. And, and people are going to use the temple as the place to communicate with God and to pray to, the, to Yahweh. Um, and that's how it became known as a house of, of prayer. Um, it goes back to this very ceremony, David. Yeah, I just wanted to make a note on that passage in Luke. Um, when, when Jesus got angry and, you know, started, you know, turning over tables and uh, throwing people out. Uh, this is one of the few times that we see Jesus expressing emotion like anger or um, uh, sorrow and desperation and the, the, some of these emotions. Um, and what's stood out to me, uh, something that I've recently come to realize is that it seems like whenever Jesus was expressing himself with these really intense emotions, um, whether it was here or um, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, or even when he was on the cross, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, it's another example here of when he's expressing himself with deep emotion, he's actually, 
quoting scripture. <laughs> um, and it, the Old Testament scripture was so deeply ingrained in him that it becomes like his default um, mode of expression, uh, as opposed to some, you know, a lot of times when I get angry or frustrated, that's scripture is usually not what coming is what <laughs> usually is not what's coming out of my mouth. Um, so I just think it's such a cool example of Jesus um, being that perfect human. And, you know, it's human to experience certain emotions like that. And it's not wrong to experience anger. And we see that um, in Jesus's example and even, you know, the command to be angry, but not sin. Um, anger in itself is not a sin, but, the expression of that is and your response to it is what makes all the difference. And Jesus models the response, whether in anger or desperation or pain or suffering to quote scripture. And that's just such a cool thing to me. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good side note. I like that. Yeah. Um, totally off topic, but I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> it's all good. We do this. We do this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so this idea of the house of the temple being a house of prayer um, really comes from, I think, from this dedication prayer that Solomon has. Because in all of those circumstances, he's talking about when people then seek God in their desperation, in their struggles, in their trials. Um, even in there, there's, you mentioned, David, as you pause partway through the reading, and say, you know, when they turn away from God and are deported, it, it's, 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 it's not a question of if they will, but when it doesn't say if it says, when. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we're going to see that in just a minute when we see God's response, that there is this looming cloud. Uh, but for now, the only cloud that we have is the cloud of God's glory. So, um, what we didn't cover is that uh, Solomon brought the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the Ark of the Covenant of God. He, Solomon brought the, the Ark into the temple and he made sure that the Levites did it. He probably got some very specific instructions from his father, David, who's, who messed up the first time. And, uh, but they did, the Levites did it exactly right and got the, the Ark into the Holy of Holies. And it says, it specifically says, and the only thing in the ark was the covenant. Um, so they get the ark into the Holy of Holies, and then this, this dedication ceremony happens. So what happens after this dedication? So all the leaders are there, and everybody is, uh, is praising God, and there's trumpets, and there's all sorts of things taking place, very much like um, any other big dedication ceremony that Israel has had. Um, and you're going to read about more of these things when you read about the rebuilding of the wall, with Nehemiah, there's going to be a similar dedication ceremony. This, this, is, this is like part of their DNA of how they celebrate. So what happens in response? Second Chronicles chapter 7. Um, we're going to finish up with God's response to this because that's really what matters more than anything else. Um, Solomon was doing something for God. How did God respond to what's, what uh, Solomon did? So Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Uh, when Solomon finished praying, Fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of the Lord. And all the Israelites were watching when the fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and praised the Lord for he is good and his faithful love endures forever. So after seven years of building and a grand celebration um, of worshiping God by declaring all the wonderful things he's done and, and by praying and seeking his face and sacrificing like hundreds of thousands of animals sacrificed to God at this point, God shows up and floods the place with his glory. And, and if you think of God being light, if you've been studying the first John uh, study, imagine light reflecting in a room full of gold. I mean, it just had to be tremendous, which is why it also said that there was uh, this cloud that, that filled um, the holy place to the point where the priest couldn't be in there. That happened earlier when the ark was moved. Um, but this idea of just the glory of God uh, filling this place and flooding this place. And, and it takes us back to Leviticus chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, where the tabernacle was set up and they had a similar ceremony. And 
Moses and Aaron met with God and then come out to bless the people. And as they bless the people, fire descends and consumes an offering that's on the altar. And so we have the same imagery that goes back to the tabernacle, which I think is also confirming to Israel because it's part of their history, confirming to them that this is the same God and God is just as pleased to be dwelling here as he was with the tabernacle. It's not just some crazy idea that, that David had. This is actually God's willingness to come and to participate with them and to accept this and make this his, uh, his home, so to speak. Um, and after all of this settles and the building is done and Solomon's done building his own, Solomon built his own house, by the way, which is bigger than the temple. Um, but after, after Solomon's done building all of his stuff, um, God appears to Solomon a second time. And, and we don't have a, an exact time reference. Um, Though it's in in First Kings, um, uh, though it's in First Kings, the passage in Second Chronicles is more famous because it includes some words that are not in the in the Kings account. And so, in Second Chronicles chapter seven, uh, starting in verse twelve, we'll read our last uh, passage for this morning. And it says, uh, "Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and He said to him, I have heard your prayers, and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice.'" And if I shut the sky so there's no more rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and I will heal the land. And my eyes will now be open and my ears attentive to prayer from this place. I'm going to pause there for just a second. I mean, isn't that like the summary of Solomon's prayer? I mean, that's, those are all the things that Solomon prayed for. Um, and we hear that quote a lot, don't we, in verse 14. If my people who are, who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Um, be careful not to pull that out of context. This is specifically talking about uh, some, some situations that are going to be coming up here. Um, but he says, my, he says uh, I'm now going to be listening. And I'm going to be watching uh, from this place, which I think is really just a, a cool picture for us right? because we already know that he doesn't, he's not contained in a building. Um, he said, and I have now chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing everything I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and ordinances, I will establish your royal throne as I promised your father David, and you will never fail to have a man ruling Israel. I want to pause again just quickly. Um, when he says that, that his eyes and his heart will be there at all times, um, understand that this temple is symbolic of many other things. Uh, God is not attached to the actual physical structure. It's what it represents, and uh, it represents a lot of different things. We'll talk about that in, in just a minute here. Um, in verse 19, however, if you turn away and abandon my statutes and my commands that I have set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and bow and worship to them, then I will uproot Israel from the soil that I gave them. And this temple that I have sanctified for my name, I will banish from my presence. I will make it an object of scorn and ridicule among the people. As for this temple, which is exalted, everyone who passes by will be appalled and will say, why did the Lord do this to this land, to this temple? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord God of their ancestors who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They clung to other gods and bowed and worshiped to them and served them. Because of this, he brought all this ruin on them. So, so we kind of have this... Uh, you know, hey, thanks for this temple. It's awesome. And I'm going to listen and I'm going to hear your prayers. And if you repent, if you turn to me, um, then I will hear and I will, you know, I'll be paying attention from here. And as long as you're following me, that's going to be great. But if you turn, if you fail to follow my ways, if you just start living for other gods again, um, then I will bring everything, including this temple, to ruin. And I will, I will punish the land, I will punish the temple, and I will punish my people Israel. Um, all, all three of those will get punished. Um, it's kind of an ominous doom and gloom kind of message here. Um, it's meant to be a warning, 
but we know that it ends up being very much more prophetic, doesn't it, David? Sorry, I was muted. Uh, kind of noisy outside, <laughs> but yeah, it goes back to that. It's not uh, it's not if, but when, uh, because we know that they will be uh, sent into exile. The temple would be destroyed, um, eventually rebuilt. Um, but I also think it's it's significant to recognize, you know, how important and symbolic the temple was um, to have this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, go around and, and make a statement like, I'm going to destroy the temple. <laughs> it was a hugely loaded statement. Um, and then to say he would rebuild it in three days. It took seven years to build this one. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head how long it took for, you know, um, uh, Nehemiah to rebuild it. Nehemiah to build it. But um, it, you know, it was quite the process. So for him to say, I'm just going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Um, it, it has all of this background significance um, loaded into that statement. Yeah. And so the temple construction talks about the, the story of redemption, going back to the Garden of Eden, going back to the presence of God, of God's presence being among man. Will God dwell among man? God will live among the darkness. It's, it's talking about him being with us again, even though man is continually evil, <laughs> which is what God said. Why we, I'm not going to destroy the earth again, even though I know that man is continually evil. In other words, I'm, I'm willing to be here and dwell here among people, even though it's dark. Um, and yeah, it, pointing to the Messiah and him being a picture of the, ta- of the, of the temple. But you and I are also pictures of the temple. And, um, and, and that's something that we have to keep in mind that uh, this was the dwelling place of God in the New Testament. And we're going to look at this as Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus teaching later on in the year. Uh, you and I are referred to as temples as well. And we're going to get a chance to look at that. But it's symbolic of so many things. But the most important thing to symbolic of is the very presence of God and, and the presence of God among men. That's going back to the main story of Scripture. And that's something you have to keep in mind. The purpose of this temple was to have the presence of God among his people um, on display through his people and working in the lives of his people. So it's, it's just huge. Um, so as we look at, as we wrap up our time here, um, there's so much theology in this. There's so many application points. Um, you know, like, like God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And the temple embodies that. You have the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. You have the promise to David that, Saul, that his son would build the temple. And as Solomon's doing this temple dedication, you know, he's bringing up, um, hey, this is, you fulfilled your promise. You've kept your word. You've kept your word. You've kept your word. Uh, I think that that's really significant, um, that God is faithful to keep his promises. And, and that's one of those applications we need to always keep in mind. Um, what do you have, David? Um, I think one of the things that really stands out to me is uh, <laughs> just the fact that you know, the temple was built for the purpose of, of God's presence to be, you know, symbolized and manifested, but also for the people to worship God in a, in a, you know, that was part of their, their lifestyle was temple worship. They did it um, every day. And that it was part of their cycle of their year was the, you know, different traditions of, how, of maintaining the temple. Um, however, <laughs> worshiping God is, not about anything that we create. Um, so it wasn't about the temple itself. Um, it was about worshiping who God is and recognizing his faithfulness and celebrating his glory and appreciating the beauty of God and his creation. But it's not about um, anything that we make, uh, whether it's art or music. You know, we, worshiping God is not about... Uh, specific you know songs and and playing music really well music is one awesome way to worship god and celebrate his beauty um but it's it's not about a building it's not about a song it's not about a sermon um it's about god's faithfulness and his glory Um, so it's you know our perspectives can become warped um just like you know worshiping 
a statue in, <laughs> instead of worshiping God. Uh, it's just as bad to worship music instead of worshiping with music. <laughs> yeah. So it's an important distinction to make. Yeah. And I think another thing that caught my eye in the application realm is when you think about, I know when you, when you were seeing the images of the altar where they sacrifice the animals, that's much bigger than I envisioned in my head of a, of an altar. It was, it was huge. And the reason for that altar was to sacrifice animals for the sins of the people. And I think that it's just a reminder that God's presence among his people does not mean that they will, will <laughs> cease to sin. You know, yeah. here's God living among them, but here's this huge altar out front reminding them that, yeah, you're going to sin and you're going to have to offer sacrifices mm. for that sin. Um, and, and I think that we were covering this in first John too, and talking about the fact that, you know, it, if you say that we haven't sinned or we have no sin, then, then we lie. It's like, we're all going to sin. And um, there still mm -hmm. needs to be a sacrifice for that. Um, so I think that was one of the reminders yeah. too. And confession and repentance was a big part of that, you know, daily rhythm and should continue to be for us. Although we don't have to offer animal sacrifices to atone, uh, to, to pay for our sin because Jesus did that. Um, and just because we are temples now of God's presence um, doesn't mean we won't still mess up sometimes. And we still need to go through confession of that sin when we're convicted of it and repent of that sin. So 